Welcome to episode 221 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Noah, and with me today are Ryan, Michael, and Jill. This week, we're going to be discussing how to recover from a catastrophic system failure. We have news on open source and how it's being used to fight rare genetic diseases. We're also going to cover Facebook's latest 500 million record breach. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks all this week coming up on Destination Linux. This week in our community feedback, Matt writes us to say, Hi, DL folks. I have a story to tell. So a couple days ago, I go into GOG.com and purchase and download the Windows-only game, No Man's Sky. Now, this is a game I particularly loved, but the developers themselves got a lot of hate when this game first released. So I'm very familiar with No Man's Sky. It's a very cool exploration game. Um, He goes on to say, since I intend to play this on Linux, I wanted to make sure my Wine installation is current and proceed to install it via Wine. The installation proceeds without a hitch. That's strange, I tell myself. There's no way it's that easy. Next, I go and try and run the game. And you'll never believe it, but it runs without a single issue. No messing with configs, no random packages. You have to download off the internet and find directories and put them in. It just works. And even more than that, it plays just fine on my hardware and I can fully enjoy the game. I'm beside myself in disbelief. I thought the whole point of gaming on Linux with wine was to scream in frustration at random strangers <laughs> on the internet and complain that it doesn't work. You're, you're only half wrong there. What I'm supposed to do with my time, what am I supposed to do with my time? Actually play my game and have real fun. Where's the fun in that? Cheers, Matt. I love this email and I wanted to highlight it because this has been my experience lately with many games in the Linux sphere. There was a time where getting some of these games to work in wine, even for myself who played and dabbled with this stuff for hours at a time, was just a frustrating experience to the point where you'd be like, I'm just not going to play the game because I know it's going to be a whole hours and stuff of setup. But since Proton and since wine has changed, like with Play on Linux and other things, it's just become a completely different experience. And you can go grab that game that you want to play, download it, hit play just like you were in any other operating system and run it. And I think that speaks volumes about the incredible work that the community and Proton and the Wine team have done to make gaming on Linux kind of a first-class citizen. Yeah, definitely. Like Ryan was saying, um, I've been playing No Man's Sky since it was released in August of 2016 and, and always loved it. And yeah, back then you did have to um, adjust some wine configs to get it to play smoothly, but it actually would would launch because fortunately it was created in OpenGL. <laughs> that was yeah. a good thing. So, but uh, what was awesome is Lutris then had made some enhancements for it that would make it play much more beautifully. And now it plays perfectly with wine and Steam's Proton. So you know, with the exception of some games with anti-cheat software, most games play on Linux. Right. And, and that's really not a anti, just, that's not a not Linux thing, the anti-cheat software. That's, exactly. That's a way that they implement that software specifically that just doesn't work. It's not like Linux couldn't run it. Yeah. It, yeah. it could run it if they bothered to make it run on Linux. Yeah. yeah. Like Valve's anti-cheat runs just fine for us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but for some reason, you know. Like easy anti-cheat easy and other ones like that yeah 
<laughs> not very yeah. easy, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the uh, this is actually a really good point because I think that the like the the platforms that we have with Wine, like I remember when I first got into Linux, gaming was not remotely viable. Even with the the the, the state native games, it was like maybe ten or twelve or something like that. And then every year it just gets better and better. And from that, we also get benefits to the platform itself because when you get innovation in gaming, you also get innovation on the ecosystem and so much. And with Proton and Wine and Code Weavers and Lutris doing all this great work to make gaming on Linux fantastic, I have the exact same experience many times where I just click play and it and it plays and it's just wonderful. Yeah, so if you're yeah. doing that dual booting thing with Windows 10 because you want to do your gaming, give it another shot doing pure gaming <laughs> on Linux, and I think you're going to be surprised. We love hearing from our worldwide community. What we want you to do is get your official Dillion mug, fill it with some yummy bubbly or coffee, sit down on the nearest stool, and send us an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. And if you want to join in on the community discussions, then join the DLN community forum by going to dlnforum.com. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their new app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. DigitalOcean's app platform has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, and StaticSide. What does all that mean? Well, it means that you simply write code. That's what you as a developer do. You write the code, you focus on making the code do what you want it to do. And then you tie that to DigitalOcean's app platform and DigitalOcean will take care of all of the rest. Then you concentrate on code and you let DigitalOcean do what they do best. That's run servers. Or you can hire somebody to maintain the server for you because moving droplets back and, and moving droplet images back and forth between people is, is ridiculously simple. And the ability to just manage most of that right from the dashboard in the web UI means that you can manage that from a team uh, with absolutely no problem. And as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. We're going to help you get started for free. You're going to help us help you get started for free. Somebody's going to help you get started for free. <laughs> anyway, you're getting $100. That's what's happening. You're getting $100 that you can go spend over DigitalOcean by going to do.co slash DLN. There are no catches. There are no strings. You just go to do.co slash DLN and you get $100 credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week's episode of Destination Linux. So the topic this week I really wanted to cover with everyone and I wanted to get your personal catastrophic failure options that you all deploy because I was going through my list of backups. And let me explain what my recovery plan is first, and then you guys will realize how much I need help with here and it can give me some good advice potentially. So my recovery plan is I don't care about all the operating system settings or specific tweaks or anything I do because you know I do so many and it takes me so long to set, right, Michael? Like all my tweaks. Yeah, I don't I was, do any. I mean, in terms <laughs> yeah. of recovery systems, there is so much he has to do with his OS because yeah. I mean, he changes like the maybe, personalization, maybe one thing, and it that's a the lot wallpaper. to keep up with. Yeah, sometimes. Um, so I don't care about the operating crazy. system by itself. So if I have a catastrophic failure, my system crashes entirely. I get a new machine and I need to reload it. I'm just going to go grab, you know, the latest Fedora. I'm going to install it. I don't care about wallpapers, special tweaks, shortcuts, any of that stuff. I just want my videos, documents, pictures, templates, and the content that I created to be restored back to this machine. So how do I do that? Well, over the years, I've acquired 
a multitude of different backup systems. Sometimes it was because I was trying something for video content. It was recommendations from people like Noah or others on backup systems that I deployed. But now I have a situation where all of them are kind of backing up similar things all across the board. So I've got the backup part down really, really well. It's just, I've got lots of duplication in my backup. So probably not utilizing my storage to its best ability. So I have a Synology NAS, actually I have two of them, uh, that are doing backups on a regular basis with all my machines. They're taking snapshots of all the systems, mainly the important critical files that are running. I have a free NAS backup where I store all my critical files and sync those files for kind of long-term storage. And then I have Raspberry Pi that's running Open Media Vault where I back up to an external drive for pictures from my phone. And that's specifically because the iPhone, I use an app on there that allows me to sync into that Raspberry Pi and the Open Media Vault. And it automatically just deploys any pictures that I take because I don't want to use iCloud and those type of things right over into Open Media Vault as soon as I get home or I'm within range of that network. And then I have a mega NZ for my personal file cloud storage that I have, but I also have Nextcloud where I store files sometimes as well, set up on DigitalOcean, and generally I use Veracrypt to encrypt all of my files. So that's my recovery plan. Something crashes, I go to one of those two options, either my Synology NASes or my free NAS, and I grab all my files because they're all kind of duplicated over the years across both and pull them down and I'm ready to rock and roll again. What happens if your house burns down? Well, that's where Mega NZ comes in. <laughs> Mega NZ is where I keep the files that are most important to me, cloud storage in the backup. So that's where that's my house burned down program. <laughs> is your is the whole NAS backed up to Mega NZ? No. Just my critical family photos and most critical files move over to Mega NZ. Okay. And you're that I couldn't okay. lose in a fire. You that, and you're okay with losing the rest? Is that kind of your I mean, I'm not, okay. I wouldn't be happy about it, but I could recover because a lot of my content, for instance, you know, is out there for video content stored in its edited version on YouTube and library and other places. So, I mean, technically a lot of that content's out there, or since Michael develops most of my uh, artwork and stuff for my show, I just go, Michael, Hey, uh, my house burnt down. Can you send me over my artwork? Um, which what, I do still what have. About, so, <laughs> so what do you, um, what do you pay? If you don't mind me asking, like, give me a ballpark of what somebody would expect to pay on something like mega MZ. Um, it, it can range anywhere depending on how much storage you want from, you know, as, I think it's as low, their low plans, like 15 on over a hundred dollars a month, depending on what you want to set okay. up. And if you pay the hundred dollar, that pretty much covers even terabytes worth. Of it, gives, it gives you a good amount of storage. I don't think you get terabytes with it, but a pretty good amount. Okay. And the reason I ask is I just wonder, like, what if you had an off? Do you have someplace else, like a, a relative or a friend's house, that you could take like a little case um, that had maybe some ten terabyte drives on it? That's a really good idea. Mm -hmm. There is that. How you do it? How do you do the my house burned in a fire? Theme. I tell you what, that's, I'll, I'll get to that. First, I want to hear from Jill. What is your recovery plan? Oh boy. So, so yeah, mine, mine is very similar to Ryan's, except that I do specific tweets and configurations to my desktop manager, <laughs> but I have all those configs for Flexbox and window maker backed up in the cloud on a USB drive and even on floppy disks for my old machines. Of course. Of course. <laughs> So like Ryan, I am more concerned with backing up my home directory and all of its important contents like videos, documents, downloads, pictures, etc. But I also, 
I always tell my students to something I tell them to do from day one in class is make at least three backups of all your files <laughs> for this very reason. So I make backups, um, uh, of course, like other people do on local hard drives. I use a, external SSDs, um, even USB flash drives, and my deck alpha server for when I need uh, to backup large files I'm doing uh, rendering for animation. In the as far as cloud drives go, I have an AWS account, Box, Google. I use Digital Ocean, Ubuntu Droplet with a LAMP server for web and files. And as Noah was saying, for disaster recovery, I have an external drive in another location, which is my free NAS, NAS server hosted at my brother's house. Nice. That's <laughs> that comes smart. in hand, handy. Actually, there were times I've had to, had to use that backup before. Now, does he make you pay the electricity bill? Or <laughs> no. Sweet. I need to send my server to your brother's house. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's Ryan's solution. Found it. Yeah. Michael, what's your recovery plan? Well, I have uh, I have an interesting plan. It's it's kind of similar to Ryan's uh, in a lot of ways, uh, except for the whole mm -hmm. keeping up, you know, changing modifications to my OS. I have a lot of those changes. Uh, but my recovery plan is back up everything and back it up often. And the issue that I see with most people is that they, they just don't do the backup part. And I have a different issue. While I make backups and I do make them often, I don't clean up the backups much at yeah. all. So <laughs> I store most of my backups on my NAS, such as my uh, source files for each episode of Destination Linux and This Week in Linux that I do the editing for and that sort of stuff. I also store my design files and documents on the NAS as well. And I also use cloud storage for like most important stuff like in a self-hosted format, kind of like NextCloud uh, on a self-hosted server on DigitalOcean. And if I have a massive failure of some kind, the critical stuff is available to me to continue to do my work thanks to the cloud backup. And I do have uh, external drives as well for an extra copy approach because I like to have uh, as many backups as possible. And that's an excessive statement because I looked this morning at one of my drives to see how old my backups go. Mm. And I found <laughs> backups from 2015 that might be excessive. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I might have to clean it up pretty soon. But it is it is kind of a, an interesting thing to realize when you start having a topic on the show about backups that maybe you have too many backups. And uh, there you mm -hmm. go. But I also do uh, website design and development. So I have backup systems for that. And while my personal backup system isn't exactly what you would call automated, <laughs> um, I, it's, I, hey, I'm going to click and drag this this week, but it's, may forget uh, to. I mean, it's, <laughs> yes, kind of. But my website backup stuff for my work is uh, definitely automated. So I have backups. I have off-site off backups of my work, my sites for, uh, that happens every week, once a week, and also once a month. And I also do uh, on-site backups in uh, multiple servers for, uh, not on-site as in like the actual site server itself, but online as in it's quickly accessible. And I do that every day. Uh, so I have a lot, I have a really complicated automatic system for my, my, my work. And then my personal files, it's, it's uh, like, eh, it's a, when it's I a, remember to drag it over. It's there. a manual <laughs> thing, yeah, basically. Yeah. But it is it is kind of interesting because <laughs> you said you don't like making modifications and dealing with that because you don't have to worry about the backups. And that's a, a good point. But I just want to point out that uh, 
because Linux, the configurations in Linux are files, so everything is stored inside of your home folder or your .config folder, it does make it really easy to make backups. And for years, I was using that, uh, just copying my entire home folder, which is one of the reasons I have so many uh, files and folders of like back to 2015, because I have settings for that too. But it's because of that, I also have uh, benefits with the uh, the consave application I recently found, which is just fantastic because it allows you to save your stat your all of your configurations for KDE without having to st- store your entire home folder. This is something is you've awesome. complained about a lot with KDE because it's got files kind of all over the place. Yeah, and consave kind of goes and finds those all and allows you to back up your tweaks. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it allows you to all your configurations. It basically makes you it makes a consave file that you can import and in, in, uh, export into nice. multiple installs. It's really cool. All right, Noah, tell us where we went wrong. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. I think that's great. Here's the deal. Backup is very much a personal <laughs> backup strategy. That's what we call it, personal backup strategy, right? It, it varies from person to person. Like Michael, I also have a work side of things where we have client backups, and that's real easy. It's a liability thing. So they go into a data center. The data center deals with all the security and all the internet, and the redundant power and all of that stuff. And just once every few years, we go and swap a server and put a new server in once on, on a rotating schedule. We swap drives to make sure those don't die. Um, and then we we send all our stuff there. Uh, work, but personal side, it's it's a little bit different, right? And and so to me, because I own the business, obviously anything critical to the business, which includes any any critical stuff to manage clients, uh, all of that gets rolled ultimately in my head into my personal backup strategy because I have I and my company have to be able to survive an apocalypse. An apocalypse. So uh, the. In my house, we've got the NAS. I've also got my laptop where I have uh, all of my data that I use day-to-day when I'm doing work and and, and just on-the-go stuff. Um, both of those things back up to a backup server that's in my house. It's on the top floor of my house right next to an exit, which is the the primary place that we would all meet as a family and try and leave the house in the event of a fire, flood, disaster, whatever. Um, every my, my wife and I are both very much aware of what that box is. And so if we were going to leave the house for any extended period of time, that box would come with us. And I'd have at least within 24 hours, all of the data that was on our NAS and within about a week of whenever all the stuff that was on my laptop. Uh, if I had nothing else, I also have a uh, a case with what I call my laptop of last resort, which has all of the charging cables and necessary connection stuff to get to the NAS and rebuild um, mm. and, and rebuild because obviously I don't want to run off of the backup. If I'm, if I'm at that point, uh, my first priority is going to be to get that data restored to a working place so I can work off of it, hopefully get access back to the primary right at some point, unless it's burned down, in which case then it's necessary to get another duplicate of it. And then apart from that backup server, once a month that gets replicated to an offsite location where there's a Pelican case and that has a copy of all of the data there. So Listen, 007. This <laughs> <Yes>. is ridiculous. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. It's not. Here's, no, it's, it actually, it's, no, 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 no. It's, listen. It's great. So, so hear, hear me out. Hear me out. If you want want your data to exist at all should exist in three locations, right? Yes. <laughs> One of those locations need to be automated or it won't happen. So that's where I get to my backup server. And the offsite location is I can't, I mean, if all of the, if all your eggs are in one basket, the basket can get crushed, right? And so obviously mm-hmm. in the event of a fire flood or whatever else, we, we want to have that data in a, in, a, in a third location. 
I've just thought one step ahead and said, okay, if I'm going to have my data in a third-party location and it's in order to, to store that amount of data over that many drives, I'm going to have to have LVM or something. It would be nice to have a computer that's already configured with all of the necessary utilities and all of the, has all the encryption keys and all of that loaded so that I, I have a way to access the data, right? And that's where right. the laptop of last resort comes in. So, but, but so how long did it take you me- to set that up for you? you <laughs> i think it's awesome i actually never thought about putting a, a, i love that you have a quick release basically backup of your data as a fallout plan for in case of disaster for the yeah. exit where your family is going mm-hmm. to meet i think that's pretty awesome because honestly you know when we think about data it's more than just your pictures and stuff that that's irreplaceable and that's amazing but also listen if if really everything went to heck Social security numbers, uh, you know, bank account numbers, financial information, all of this stuff that could could go away, could be wiped out, could be forgot. You actually have an ability to grab and go and on the road and then find a place that's safe and then be able to get to that information very quickly. Whereas, you know, the rest of us, well, not so sure. Well, here's, I guess here's where it comes from. At the end of the day, it, the, the first, I, when I, I, most kids are not going to grow up with this, right? These days, everybody has cloud storage. And so they don't really think about where they store. They kind of have access to stuff. But when I grew up, like that wasn't a thing, right? We had, I had a picture. I wanted to store it. Like I had to account for that two, two, some megabytes. Like I was going to figure out like where I was going to store those two megabytes. Right. <laughs> and so you had a couple of options. You could eat up space on your hard disk, or you could have some sort of external storage, but my brain kind of learned to figure that out. And when I was going through uh, uh, middle school and, and high school, again, technology, not real prevalent in the school system. And I would get teachers that would say like, you, you can't have your laptop in class. You'll just play around on it the whole time. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll sit here and not learn. And then, you know, you take notes or whatever. I can't read my own handwriting. So that was useless to me. I get back home. I'm like, well, you know, that, that didn't work. And, and there were a few teachers <laughs> along the way that were like, yeah, sure. If I catch you on the internet, you know, but like, if you want to use it to take notes or whatever, that's fine. Guess what? It's 2021. I graduated high school like, you know, know, years ago, and I still have access to those notes. Why? Because at that time it started, there was a little, God bless the brand Acom data. It was, it was a cheap little uh, external 3.5 inch hard drive and saved up some money and bought that and plugged in my, my desktop. And for the first time I had like a place to store data. And so stuff like those high school reports and those classes and notes and everything after that, obviously, because in college it was accepted. Um, all of that stuff I have, I'm a digital mm-hmm. pack rat. And, and so the ability to look back through that in anything I've ever touched, if it's a digital file, I probably have a copy of it somewhere, right? And, and, and to see the parallel in my life between that and like watching family members or friends like, where is that copy of that Excel bill from, you know, 2020? I just need you know, like... <laughs> No, no, man. I just go to that folder and I, I pull it up. And if it's not there, I go back a few years and I'll find, you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it's, it's organized. So when I put that amount of time and then you come into the open source side of like, I believe in local media and owning all of that stuff. So every movie that I've ever purchased has been ripped and is stored and is organized and neat and catalog and all my music and all of those things I spent, you know, literally a lifetime collecting and, and curating like a digital life. It seems worthwhile and necessary to protect and care about. And I don't have, I didn't have, and I don't value the whole idea of like, Oh, well, we'll just, that just backs up to the iCloud or that just backs up to Google photos and then storage. And then, Oh yeah, Google, 
Google discontinues that. So now you're going to come up. Now everybody's going to figure that out or they're just going to pay more realistically Google to do it for them. And I there's think big myself, privacy implications there as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But there's, there's also a cost implication there too. If you, you look at how much it costs to buy a 10 terabyte hard drive. I once told a client, they, we, we told them what the backup solution was. And I'm always honest with clients. And they said, is that what you do? Is that what you pay for? I'm like, absolutely not. We offer this because your franchise requires us to offer this to you. If it were me, I would take that this amount of money that you would spend uh, spend with us to do that thing, and I would go buy external hard drives and throw them out along the interstate encrypted wise. And <laughs> if you can recover, well, really, like once every week, that's how much the cost wise it works out the same. And if you can, now I know why I found all drives. these drives on the highway. <laughs> <Yeah, right? laughs> Explain so I'm much. Just, like, Cost-wise, if you actually look into what it takes to store data, storage is cheap, people. It's really, really cheap. Mm-hmm. Go buy some storage disks and 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 pay a little of attention to to what things like ZFS or LVM can do for you to to store massive amounts of data all by yourself. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a really it's, good point. <laughs> uh, the one thing I want to cover real quick before you go off this topic, Noah. Uh, number one, I want to say that uh, I clearly don't pay attention to what I pay for cloud storage. So just because I butchered it in the beginning want to say that mega nz if it's 23 dollars a month for eight terabytes or 35 dollars a month for 16 terabytes um so that 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 gives you some idea of what they store and they're a little bit more to me trustworthy than throwing things on google and other platforms but i still encrypt before i send to those uh Mm -hmm. that particular business anyway so you kind of have my own encryption so i definitely suggest people do that one of the things that i feel like i failed the most at noah besides not having the 007 escape plan drive because that's freaking awesome and I'm doing that is the organization of the data itself. So is this just a matter of you taking the time and going, look, I'm going to make sure my backups are organized and the files are where they are, or is there a trick that you've learned over the years for this? Oh, buddy. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, uh, so I, I start, so the, the you, ha- the, the, it's, it starts with again personal backup everything I'm responsible. Yeah, he does. Well, yeah, because like here's the thing. Do you know how much There's time so much thought has gone I'd have into to this? tell you right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, right. So you start with this major container, which is everything that I am personally responsible. Somebody's going to come to Noah Chalaya and say, Hey, I and point a finger at me, I have an answer for that person. So I, I like that's my that's my umbrella. And then from there, I have to subdivide because there are legal implications, right? Of just like taking all the client data and copying it to a different folder is my personal, you know what I mean? Like you can't do that. So some thought has to be put into there. And so you, I I start with, with that overall umbrella of this is the data that I'm responsible for. And then within there, I have, I break data apart the same way that I would break apart in life. So personal business, that's the first branch. And then within personal, I have things that are personal just to me, personal to my family, personal to just my wife and I, personal in 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 the sense that if something were to happen to me, like my house deed, all the titles for our car, our bank accounts, where our insurance is, all of the passwords to all of the things, so my encrypted key, like what are all those things? How do you navigate Noah's life? Those things are kind of up here in a control mechanism uh, and then my wife and my family and all of those kinds of things, because then my wife can go to an IT company and be like, listen, I don't really understand what my, my my husband did. Like we ran this IT company. He was in charge of all the technical stuff. All I did was billing and stuff. But here's the thing. Here's the hard drive he told me. And here's the password he gave me and said that if anything happened, you'd be able to help if I gave you these two things. And then from there, you can kind of unpack and unload. Um, but so, and then as it gets in, as it gets more granular. So for example, like the, 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 the plan for my house, I've got, as you might imagine, 
a lot of wiring and automation. I like documentation for that in case somebody has the HVAC guy has to come in and modify something. I can tell them what wires are connected where and what happens. All of that is inside of a folder, you know, for house automation, which follows that track of joint stuff between my wife and I. And so I, anytime I come across a piece of data, anytime I have a file, a thing, I think to myself, what one of those master tubes do I go down? And then is there a more appropriate subtube that I can create or make? That's how I organize data. And I found it to be remarkably useful to do it that way. And when you get into things like, so for example, I've been a host on Destination Linux. So obviously in the tube, there is a Destination Linux folder, right? Yes. And <laughs> yes. within that, but then each year that changes, right? The, the How we make content, what, what we're doing, all of those things changes. So then within there, I have years so I can so I can go back. Then when something is no longer a part of my active part of my life, that goes into an archive into that, uh, into that year, I call it the wormhole. And so I can go back to any point in time in my life and be like, what was I doing in 20? Oh yeah, that, that's, that's what I was doing. There's so you're all the saying your organizational year. structure is a series of tubes. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> no, I, I, I love it. So you have a very systematic approach to your backups. And I think if I look I'm at my own life. personal, which is what I do in business, right? Was what we have mm -hmm. to do in business, but in personal, mm -hmm. that's become lazy to me, right? I've allowed this stuff to kind of just accumulate and acquire. And you can see years where I'm like, I'm going to clean all this up and you'll see those folders there, but it's never stayed systematic. And that's that discipline mm -hmm. that you have that you've applied no, personally. No, 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 it's okay. not. That's the, so here's the thing, you He's can't account for, right? No, no, really, you can't account for stuff. So here's what you do. You plan for not being able to count on stuff like that. So I have a folder, uh -huh. it's called life. And inside of life are Ooh, things like screenshots. <laughs> how, many, how many times do you take a screenshot? Like I have to remember that. Yes. And then you save it. And, but, and like you, there may be a day where like, it's so important that you're willing to go dig through 15 folders and cycle through screenshots and say, yeah. oh, that's the one. Like, sometimes that's really important and 95% and of the time you'll never care about it again. But you know what? It's like one meg. So why not save it? So put it in a screenshots folder, put it in, but a screenshots folder, internet downloads. How many times do you come across a viral video that you're like, that's going to get pulled. I should download that so that the next time somebody asks me what I was talking about, I can mm -hmm. reference it. Right. That goes in, you know. It, internet viral, whatever. And all of those things are just in a year, just I a like folder that. with the year. That's and a cool life, idea. Stuff yeah. you came across in life that year. That's <laughs> a really cool idea. I love that. I, I like oh, it. I'm going to have to start working on my personal organization. Do you, as don't well. you love how Noah, <laughs> Noah got so excited? Like, I love what yeah. you said, Michael. I got I so much that. to teach you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Noah, Perfect. I am like you. I'm a digital hoarder and I have everything I've ever done digitally um, for all my vintage computers, for my students' animation work. Sometimes I get students coming back 20 years later mm. and I can show them their work. Wow, that'd be <laughs> awesome. Know? And embarrassing probably. Yes. That too. Yeah. <laughs> and um, for my work, I have to keep um, animation assets. So I, I literally have thousands, and I'm not kidding, thousands of CDs and DVDs and floppies and zip disks and sidequest disks and they're all wow. cataloged. I spent hours. What's funny? What's funny is that Jill felt the need to explain that it's serious. Thousands of CDs. Like, no, we believe you, Jill. It's yeah. Jill, Jill, we've known you long enough at this point that yeah. We, we, when you say you have something, yeah, it's totally legit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but that, that was well, our world back in the day. Everybody remember yeah. the floppy yeah. disk catalog uh, holder yes. that was like gray and you'd open it up and it'd have little tabs <laughs> like a file management system where you put your disk and then you know which software is which or what backups did. What? <laughs> I, I remember so all I, of that. I have, the, I yeah. have one. Of, I have, I don't have one of those. I have a, it's a punch, like the, a little thing that you put optical discs, like four of them in a row, four of them in a quadrant. And then it like, uh, then it goes into like a regular binder. And yeah. this is the final stage of my backup. Planning, which I'm, I'm, I'm still refining. So we're, this isn't quite honed yet, but I'm still refining uh, after a lifetime. <laughs> well, here's, here's why, here's why. Okay. I bought optical DVDs that had a guaranteed like 50 year lifespan yeah. and three years yes. later, they're coasters. So but I supposedly am in possession of Blu-rays that have a hundred year uh, guaranteed life and they're for archival purposes. But until they actually either I live to be 150 years old and can like confirm they were, <laughs> I'm, con I'm maintaining a separate outside backup of for long term stuff. They work. <laughs> Probably a good idea. That's his last <laughs> breath. They, they worked. <laughs> I, I, I've <laughs> killed you. printers just printing out labels for everything because yeah. I am so OCD with my cataloging. And in if fact, I, I just got done. Uh, I'm, I'm remodeling my uh, Jill's Hardware Museum. So <laughs> behind, <laughs> behind me used to be um, my wall of uh, uh, discs and floppies. And just carrying out discs and floppies, have, I've, I have over 10 bins of big, huge bins of yeah. discs and floppies. How do you know if a hacker came in and stole one? <laughs> you wouldn't. I found the flaw in your plan, Jill. No. <laughs> right. Well, it's actually it's funny that y'all mentioned this stuff about like uh, the personal and work comparison you, you gave Ryan because uh, I've I I realized that I do everything that Noah does for my work files, but almost none of it for my personal files. Mm -hmm. So yeah. my work files, I, it goes back to decades. I have so much. Do you know I, how much you're. You know how much you're going to hate yourself in like five, like your apartment's going to burn down. You'll be like, I knew better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have the files. It's just not as organized and also not automated necessarily. I mean, it took Michael 30 <laughs> years to get a NAS. <laughs> that's so. uh, that's true yeah that's yeah. true <laughs> I, I, i'll say this much though I, i'll say this much though really when we talk about backups nas or not nas I, I would almost tell you is somewhat is not really part of the discussion because it doesn't it's not really so much a part of a backup strategy as as, as much as it is uh another a location mm -hmm. that is available to store data so it could be a part of one but really uh it it's about having that data readily available. I hear a lot mm -hmm. of people say things like they're like, oh, I'll get a NAS and then I'll, then I'll back up because I've got, you know, RAID Z3. And so I can tolerate drive. Like, mm -hmm. mm. The, the, the advantage of being able to lose one of those drives and still keep going is that people don't lose access to the data. Not that it's a substitute in any way, <laughs> shape or form for a backup. Like it's not, That's it's true. just another, it's another place that you can store data. For so sure. it yeah. could certainly be a, like the way that you're using it is certainly as part of one, like you've got your primaries on your computer and then you're backing up to a NAS, but um, you could, you could implement a, a perfectly great backup strategy with, with or without a NAS. And that's, I think, kind of where we wrap the discussion is, right? It, if you don't, if you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't have a GoldenEye budget to do a 007 style mission, that's okay. Like there's a Harriet the Spy version out there. You purchase an external hard drive and plug it into a uh, external USB enclosure and yep. plug it into your computer and make a backup of the of the stuff that you care about once a month and drive it over mm -hmm. to a friend's encrypt that drive drive it over to a friend's house and and leave it there and say once a month I'm going to borrow this from you and come home and do it and then over time make a second one and then the traveler becomes the one that you take to the friend's house and you copy over there and now we've got two 
entirely separate locations. There's nothing, nothing that can take you out. And if you never did anything more than that, just the data that you use, copy to a traveler, but backed up to a traveler over to a third-party location, if that's all you did, 99% of the time you'll make out all right. And then as you have an opportunity to do more, you can. So coming up with the show, open source being used to fight rare diseases. Uh, we're going to talk about more about that as the show goes on. But first, Michael, tell us about Bitwarden. Yes, this episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. You can get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager software that is just fundamental to our, our workflows on this show and just in general because it is a fantastic solution to keep track of all the passwords you have for all the websites you have. I mean, provided that you don't just reuse passwords, you should never do that. Some people do, but... You shouldn't. And Bitwarden allows you to, the, all the awesome tools that it gives you allows you to not have to worry about at what kind of passwords you have. It will automatically generate those passwords. Where do you put those passwords? It provides you with a secured vault to store them all in. And you can automatically fill in those passwords in login forms so you don't have to do it. And you can have access to all of your data on multiple different types of devices like your web browser, uh, mobile apps, desktop application, and even the command line. And in addition to that, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your, your devices so you know you're the only person with access to that data. So get started at bitwarden.com slash DLN. And I think you want to check out their premium account. Uh, as soon as I realized how reasonable the price was for their account, I immediately got it because there's so many great features and it, and it starts at just $10 per year. That's right. Less than a dollar per month will get you one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Priority Customer Service, and so much more. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. And just real quick, Bitwarden's part of my catastrophe planning as well because of yes. their emergency <laughs> access system. What happens is my wife will, if something was to happen to me and she needed to get into all of those accounts, she has emergency access into this. So she basically requests that. And after a certain amount of time, she gets a link. And if I don't deny that request, she has emergency access into all of the Bitwarden or it could be anybody, right? A family member, whomever gets access to all of that so that they can get to the files, get to the money that they need or anything else that I have in there. So Bitwarden has this. This is definitely a part of my plan. So I went a slightly different way, but I'm also using Bitwarden to accomplish the same thing. Bitwarden allows me to export as just a comma separated yep. value of raw files. But again, you can't necessarily count on all of that with all password managers. Bitwarden, they want you to own that data. They want you to be secure. So Jill, open sources to fight yeah. rare genetic diseases. How can we use? That doesn't make any sense. Tell me more. Oh, this is just so awesome. And it, and it demonstrates the power of open source. So open source is just is more than just a model you can use to make great software. It's also a framework that can be used for many services and businesses, including in the medical industry. Yes, open source is being used to help the fight against COVID. So um, let's lay the foundation for a recent example of the power of open source. So today, to create treatments for rare diseases, it is estimated to cost upwards of $1 billion. And oh yeah. my, oh my gosh. Yeah. So companies, you know, because it's a rare disease, companies don't want to put out that kind of money just for research for a few people. So, mm -hmm. you know, while 400 million people have been diagnosed with a rare disease, they, there are unfortunately over 7,000 of them in existence. 
And um, like I was saying, very few companies can step up their research and development to tackle these inflictions. So in many cases, these are horrific elements that leave children, you know, with chronic pain, paralyzed, suffering, and more, you know, some of them can't even move and walk. So the awesome thing is the Linux Foundation, along with the Open Treatments Foundation, have decided to try and do something about it using an open source model. And the new software model is called RareCamp. So another really wonderful thing um, about this combination of source of resources is this open source project is supported by individual contributors and the parents and the family members of those who have a rare disease. This is so one of my favorite talk. parts of this, Jill, yeah. is that it, it takes it takes all of the clinics and all the medical professionals that maybe somebody in Florida, this particular doctor in Florida has a client who has one of these rare genetic diseases. So over the years that they've worked with these children, they've learned some things, but where do they store mm -hmm. this data? Where do they get it to somebody else who happens to be in another country or in another state that just comes across this for the first time? Well, now you have the central area using open source technology, right? Where you can go, you can not only talk to that doctor, but you can talk to that family yes. that children now have that rare disease that has dealt with it, that have raised their children, helped them through it to get their tips and tricks of what's happening. And now you have this collaboration that you only see kind of happening in this open source type model that's been leveraged here. Well, for a long time, doctors had like journals and, and they communicated through professional means, right? Like th those kind of resources have been in existence, but because they're a limited resource and because they, it, took a lot to fund something like that. And there were companies that wanted to make money along the way. A at the end of the day, they could only focus on the diseases or the ailments that that impacted the most amount of people. Right. This opens it up to everyone. Like you said, directly to the families, allows a family to say, hey, I have this one in a million disease and another doctor on, the, on, the, on a different side of the world to say, I happen to know about that particular thing. Yeah. Yeah. I know, you know, there's also like groups of parents uh, that group together in certain specific areas to fight autism. Uh, my family is involved in one of those groups. Yeah. And this is a perfect framework for them would be open source. I mean, <laughs> when you think about this. I, I really. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. When I, think I really like that the Linux Foundation. <laughs> I really like that the Linux Foundation is, is 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 actively participating in trying to change the way mm -hmm. that people approach problems in general. Right? It's it's one thing to just say that open source works in software, and I think that's of course valuable. But when we see success in an area, tremendous amount of success, and success that really belongs to the individual and to the users, when those users use software and they get software that that they like and that they're happy and that there's a path that they can follow when something doesn't work so that they can arrive at a solution. Why wouldn't we pick that up, that model, that trusted and, and proven model and move it over to something like healthcare and say, okay, now you guys give this a shot and, and, yeah. and let patients connect directly with doctors and allow healthcare to occur rather than one company after the other and some conglomerate thing having to pay off some other conglomerate thing to manage. Uh, to, to me, that, that's very exciting and good on the Linux Foundation and other organizations for funding that. Yeah, I, I would go even a step further to say that out of anything, even over even software that we use on our desktop and love and talk about, medical is where we should be mm -hmm. open sourcing Absolutely. more than anything else, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is the perfect Especially candidate right now. Yes, yeah. <laughs> for this type of, of work and research. I mean, even Apple, who does so very little for open source, actually 
made their care kit and their research that they've done open source so people can use and leverage. And so I, I think all the companies understand from just being, if you have any ounce of humanity at all in you, that this would be the right way to go about resolving these type of issues. But I love that they're also not only are they collecting with global talent pool researchers, clinic, uh, clinics, marketing operations, but they allow you to rent this industry-grade infrastructure for the scientific research. So what does this do? Well, obviously, if it's a small disease, it's only impacting a small amount of people around the world. You're not going to be able to go buy millions of dollars of equipment that you need to perform research in this, but they're creating an infrastructure to allow them to rent this equipment, to run those experiments that they need to run, uh, far less cost involved in that as well. So also reducing the cost of the advanced research that needs to be done here. I just can't think of a better project to really be focusing on. You know, yeah, the other, cool. the, one of the, one of the other things that really excites me is we saw this kind of coming out through the pandemic is um, there were obviously a lot of people that worked in science that were really excited about the metrics that came in around this pandemic. Sure. But one of the things that I think has been really interesting and uh, really cool is that that information is out and available to anyone everywhere. Um, and so all sorts of different minds can approach with their ideas and potential solutions. And that allows for a larger discussion to occur. And I think that's really valuable. So as I, as I see that these kind of models being implemented for in, in healthcare, one of the other things that I think is exciting is from a research standpoint, let alone just connecting, uh, you know, a, a, a patient with a doctor, there's also the potential here to, to really understand diseases in a whole new way or allow technology to allow people to study uh, diseases in a whole new way. Yeah. Brilliantly said. There's also a great comment in our patron chat where uh, Mal says that there's also the Open Medicine Foundation, which is doing some of that stuff for the for COVID terms and uh, and also extra stuff for uh, in an open source approach to medicine, which is just an, another fantastic example of what can be done with this approach to this kind of industry. Because you know, as we said, there's not that. Uh, many big pharmaceutical companies who are interested in helping these 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 issues that are only affecting you know there's one case the person who founded the uh, the open treatments uh, was actually created it because of their their son had a rare disease that only affects uh, seven people in total that has been diagnosed and this as a solution to assist when people who have those kinds of issues is just it's just amazing. It's people taking back control because you can't force a company to focus on the small disease, but you also don't want to sit there as a parent and do nothing if your child's inflicted with this. And this gives them a path to actually go forward and talk with experts and find a way to hopefully find a cure, or at least find a way that they can make the most comfortable life possible with all the knowledge that's out there. And that to me is amazing and something that should be praised. What shouldn't Absolutely. be praised though is what we're going to talk oh, about next. No. <laughs> nice transition. Yeah. <laughs> so, what we're what we're going to be talking about is um well, Facebook is in the news again. recently again for the same kind of thing. Uh <laughs> so many people have switched to Linux and open source based on their preferences and concerns over security and privacy and uh, th this is uh, it, it seems like weekly at this point, there are reports from companies like massive data breaches exposing more and more personal data to the world. And recently there was a breach so large that we just had to cover it on the show. And that is Facebook. So Facebook had 500 million, yes, 500 million mm -hmm. user accounts leaked. For comparison's sake, the entire population of the United States is 332 million. 
So it's a significant number. The leak contains information from, uh, from 106 countries, including phone numbers, Facebook IDs, full names, locations, bios, uh, birth dates, email addresses, and more. It's just, it, it's a, um, this is a crazy amount of data that has been leaked and uh, it's not getting enough attention as it should because Facebook is kind of trying to skirt around it saying that they're they're making adjustments and saying that this is this is not a recent thing this is from old data from 2019 for example and they say that the if issue has been fixed and like no it's not because 500 million people's counts have <laughs> has leaked that's not Well the fixed. 2018 one was like 267 million right is what they yeah. reported now now we have 500 million and it's funny seeing the reactions from Facebook I, I've seen stuff where they're stating, well, this isn't a breach of our back end. People are just scraping the data off of our website. We just so have it mean, publicly yeah, available. You mean all of this data is just open and we're just allowing oh. anybody who wants to just go grab it? Uh, that's supposed to make me feel better? I'm I'm amazed that people still use Facebook. It, it blows my mind that people sign up for this. But I think a lot of people say, okay, my phone number is out there, whatever. That, that stuff's out there on the website already. My email address. You know, people seem to somehow just think this is fine. But there are huge implications to this. You know, people who deal with stalkers who are trying to hide their identity um, from crazy family members or other things now have their data breached out there. Um, there was a very interesting video where someone was taking this data and showing how they could track and pull specific use cases of just college people in this state with this name and, and be able to just start building profiles for hacky, for hackers. So now you're going to get those phishing emails. They're going to be very personalized. They're going to know from your biographies, your favorite movies, where you live, your birthday, who your friends are, all of this data, so much so that I guarantee you even people who focus on this stuff constantly, like myself, could probably be trapped into clicking a link in an email if they had this much data and information that they could pour over and they were targeting me specifically. This has such big implications. And the fact that Facebook just brushes it off like, eh, who cares, just shows you where they're at as a company, mm -hmm. right? And, and what they're, they just, they don't care. And they will do anything they can to take your data and sell it. They think they're, they're interested in your data, even though apparently most people are not interested or don't think companies are interested. They sure show that they are. It's just fascinating to me that we're still even talking about Facebook and this company hasn't gone under, which is what most companies you would hope would happen with these type of breaches and their lack of care for it. Yeah. And also for perspectives of some people who probably remember the Cambridge Analytica that the Cambridge Analytica was affecting about 80, 87 million users. So in, con in comparison, it was 87 million in 2018, and now we have a 500 million uh, this year. So uh, it's, it's, it's escalated. And the, 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 essentially the data that was scraped in this case was the similar public stuff that was, was in Cambridge Analytica stuff. And then everybody was really mad about what happened with Cambr Cambridge Analytica. And this is five times worse than that. And they're just kind of brushing it under the rug like it's not a big deal. Uh, so, you know, it, it's also, I think there's more data included in this breach than the it's, previous It's a one big deal to us. Like We're going to talk about it. And I've got a video out there that, that I worked with an InfoSec engineer on to give you the basic ideas of creating privacy, give you a fantastic foundation. So go check that out. If you use Facebook, um, delete it. Just, just stop using Facebook would be my advice. 
Um, but there are other alternatives out there in social media, open source alternatives that if you need that social media fix, if you need somebody to tell you your steak that you took a picture of at the restaurant looks great, that you can use in place of that. Yeah, like, that's the point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mastodon would be oh, my favorite. Nice. I think Mastodon's my favorite open source social media site out there. It's it's basically comparable to like a Twitter. And then, of course, you have Diaspora, which is your Facebook, I believe, replacement alternative out there. Mm -hmm. uh, I've not used it as much, but it very much looked like, well, last time I used Facebook was probably 10 years ago. It looked like that type of it's, thing. It's similar to Facebook, yeah. There's there's Mastodon. Yeah. I think I agree that Mastodon is one of the best. And there's also PixelFed, which is kind of like an Instagram, open source Instagram approach. Oh, yeah. Uh, PixelFed's pretty cool, one. too. And so I, I would much rather, and I know people say, well, my family members won't move over to those platforms and things like that. Um, get better family members. I don't know what the <laughs> advice is there. Good tip. Uh, Good tip. Yeah. Yeah. Get different family. <laughs> get a different family. A <laughs> Replace your family. Um, but I, I think there's plenty of options, you know, element matrix for your chat, getting your family yeah, there to talk. Um, even if it was telegram, it's better than Facebook, but matrix mm -hmm. element would be the preferred one. Of course, uh, there's just so many alternatives now. I don't think it's so hard to get people to move. If yeah. they actually like you, uh, they'll probably move and talk to you on the platform. That's a little more private and secure there. And, and friends and family stuff. You could go with like signal and session. There's some there's, signals a good one. Yeah. yeah there's some oh, good ones that yeah. are giving you some good uh, encryption tools and a session. I recently played with the session. It's like a fork of signal that uses a uh, ID numbers, which is, kind of a little confusing because it's gigantic numbers to identify the person so it's really it's it, it, that part's a little bit weird but everything else is, is just a fantastic experience uh, but for people who uh, we know that there are some people who are going to want to do facebook still uh, so what should people do who still want to use facebook well mm -hmm. first if you can i don't even know if they let you take get rid of the numbers now because i think you have to do it for sign up or something i don't know uh, but if you could, if you can remove the numbers, your phone numbers, uh, update your privacy security settings, because there's a whole section for privacy security. There's a bunch of stuff. You can, uh, make a, uh, an email address. That's not your primary, make that a part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, have something like that where you just, you have a little bit of anonymity attached to it. Don't include your birthday. Uh, don't have uh, stuff that it, like your location. Absolutely. Don't do that. You know, red herrings. Yeah. Stuff like that. If you're going to use Facebook anyway, and also, if you're a Firefox user, you should install the container tabs extension because, well, specifically the Facebook yes. container extension, <laughs> because this is an awesome feature that allows you to go to Facebook and the if you just type in Facebook or go to the website, it will automatically pull you out of whatever container you're in and put you into this particular Facebook container. And anytime you click a link to leave Facebook, it will take you out of that container. So it eliminates a lot of the ability for Facebook to track you across the web. So it will only be able to track you on its own sites and that sort of stuff. So it's, you, it still could track you because you're still using it, but it's a lot less of an issue. And if yeah. you're not using Firefox and you still like one of these features, then uh, you install Firefox. Yeah, and I think when you take Firefox, use the container tab, you do red herrings across your Facebook account. Once you open Facebook in the container tab, delete your account and you're all set. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's an option too. Also, yeah. quick note, uh, there's some settings where you can do like uh, allow people to to see the, the data. There are some things you have to have like an email address. T change that to like only you or, you know, friends maybe. So it's just not publicly accessible just to make sure that, you know, the, the, the data that you do have to have there isn't just freely available from these scrapers and stuff. 
All right, so something a little more positive in our gaming section. This is pretty awesome. It reminds me of Command and Conquer style game here, Warzone 2100. If you're looking for a 100% free and open source game to play right now, then look no further than this recently updated awesome strategy game. Warzone 2100 originally made in 1999 and developed by Pumpkin Studios. Game is a 3D real-time strategy game with both single player and multiplayer. So if you want to go and show Michael has no strategy of war whatsoever, invite him to the game multiplayer. You'll be able to (laughs) dominate him very easily. He'll get distracted. He'll be on his Facebook account or something. Not that part, Um, but guaranteed the distraction for sure. I'll probably be on PixelFed or something. PixelFed, yeah. Likely available in your distros repositories so you could just install it straight from your software store. This game has received a ton of new updates recently. New factions, higher end res terrain textures and backdrops. So they've updated the graphics here. Support for scripting and random maps. You can go create your own maps and things if you want to. Uh, Lots of quality of gameplay improvements and smoothness. Lots of bug fixes have come in. This is a really cool game. Jill, have you ever checked out Warzone 2100? Oh, yeah. And in fact, in this release, I noticed how much much higher quality the uh, textures are <laughs> now on the terrain Isn't that and, nice? and the yeah. whole atmosphere and it's just it's really nice um it's a really nice atmospheric game with really great music and by the way they have a new uh, music manager which is really cool so is cool. you can actually change the soundtrack you'd like like to hear when the game is playing and that is really cool because you're going to be sitting down for hours <laughs> playing it. it's going to draw you in so this is sure. a game where you're basically <laughs> top down you're building your army out you've got to get resources very star crafty very command and conquer if you've ever played those type of games but free and open source so mm-hmm. yeah and it's got great quick time events even though you know they're really old now and low res they really draw you in i really like that opening quick time <laughs> it's nice very cool it's cool i i've i've I haven't used this before, played this game before because I'm not a RTS player, but I looked at it recently this week when uh, when you mentioned it, that we were going to talk about it. So I, I went and checked it out and it, mm. it is very impressive to be an open source uh, program, uh, open source game yeah. that has been around for that long. <laughs> uh, because when I first saw that it was 1999, I, I, was, I was not expecting that much because of not hearing about it. But just checking it out for a few minutes, you see, wow, this is an impressive game. The amount of effort put into this game is just just fantastic. So if you are into RTS games, you definitely need to check out Warzone 2100. And another thing you need to check out is our software spotlight. Because this week we're going to be talking about Avidemux. Now, I don't oh, know boy. if that's actually how you're supposed to say it. <laughs> it could be AVIDMux, but I think it's Avidemux because I want it to be. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Avidemux is a free video e- editor designed for simple cutting, filtering, and encoding tasks. It supports many file types, including AVI, which is where the name comes from, uh, DVD-compatible MPEG files, MP4, and ASF, including also MKV in a variety of codecs. Uh, tasks can be automated using projects and job queues and powerful scripting capabilities. It also has multi-threaded video decoding, and it supports multiple platforms for Linux, BSD, even Mac and Windows. And one of the things I wanted to talk about it for is because Avidemux saved the, uh, le- yesterday's episode of This Week in Linux because Aww. I had an issue that when I was streaming the show, I had finished the recording, but... Sometimes OBS has this issue. If you click stop recording without stopping the streaming, it will 
basically uh, crash OBS. Well, randomly, yesterday, OBS decided, you know what, I'm just going to crash anyway. So it did. And uh, if you, when you use MKV, there's a, va- a really awesome feature of MKV is that ev- it, it's going to be saving the data to the MKV file as it is being recorded. So you don't have to worry about it being encoded afterwards, which takes an excessive amount of time. It's doing it as you're recording, which is a fantastic feature. However, it does need to have the duration of the file finalized when you in, you end the file so that it can be detected in video editors. That's not what happened because OBS crashed without finalizing the file, which created this like infinitely looped video where it didn't know what the duration was. So I was kind of freaking out, and a couple of patrons uh, in the at the end, at the end, in the patron post show was uh, letting me know about like an, a, a, a piece of uh, software called Avidimux, which I have been using for many years, but I didn't know it could do this until yesterday. So mm. all I did was open the mm-hmm. file and then save a version from Avidimux. And it fixed the duration problem. And then all of a sudden I can wow, edit the video. That's cool. Yeah. It's yeah, such a awesome. really cool feature. And and it and it doesn't it doesn't mention that it's possible to do it, but you just open the file, it detects the duration, you save it, and it puts the duration in, and now that file's good to go. It was it's Aww. such a fantastic uh like thing to find. Cause I was freaking out for about thirty five minutes or so. Like, what am Aww. I gonna do? And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, well, <laughs> thanks, Avidimux. Problem solved. Oh boy! I use uh, Avidmux every week to edit yeah. Ask Noah. Every week. Oh, cool! Nice. It's a great, great piece of software. Yeah, Michael, it it fixed your corrupt iframes. Yes, <laughs> yes, it did. Yes. <laughs> also, I want to make a quick note. They they made they made a blog post recently about uh somebody has put a uh, Avidmux in the Microsoft Store. So if you are using Windows for whatever reason, uh, don't use that one because it's not theirs. It's not an official one. It's just someone mm-hmm. trying to take advantage of them not mm-hmm. having a store example. So uh, there you go. So just wipe uh, your system, install Linux, yeah. and yeah. then you can... Yeah. You, 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 you should Real do that one as well. that comes down from the yeah, Do that as well. <laughs> but Avidmux, thank you very much for making a great software. Very cool. In this week's tips and tricks section, we're going to be discussing benchmarking your Linux machine. So let's say you get a brand new computer and you say you want to test it to maybe how it compares to older machines or just make sure you always have a better computer than anybody that is here on the show. This is the way that you can go ahead and do that. One tool you'll want to go ahead and download is Blender Benchmark. This tool will let you do a series Mm -hmm. of image rendering tests for your CPU and GPU. Another tool you might want to check out is the build in benchmarks and that many game Uh, contains such as Tomb Raider or Batman Arkham Origins. You can also use the Pharonix test suite. And this is actually what I personally do when I'm trying to compare one computer to another or trying to get get an idea uh, because it also lets me then uh, understand when Pharonix releases an article um, what I'm reading and what that really translates to. Um, but that contains all the cool benchmarking tools that you see on the Pharonix website. GNOME Disks will let you benchmark disk drives and write speeds. There's also some tools like GTK Stressing and Geekbench. Basically, any performance metric that you want to test in Linux is available to you in one of those tools. There are many available as well. So the next time that your friend tells you that their Windows machine is faster, you have the tools to wreck them. Only thing I would cons- I would add to that is just that we want to make sure that you're using like tools, right? So if you're using one-on-one platform, make sure to use the same tool on the other platform. Yeah, that's a very that's a very key point. I was doing this recently, doing a lot of stress testing and things because I switched over to a water cool all-in-one solution for the uh, Leon Lee mini Titan build that I have. And I really wanted to see the different temperatures that I was getting. And I wanted to see if I got any speed improvements out of some mm-hmm. of the tweaks that I was making. And it's so great 
that we have so many of these different tools that you can leverage here. Some people are overwhelmed by the Foronix test suite with all the different options and things. So there are many just very basic GUI based, you install the program, you tell it to run it, and it gives you comparisons against all of the other uh, computers that are similar out there. But one of my favorites, honestly, is Blender Benchmark because benchmarks create this perfect world scenario, right? And a lot of them focus on just gaming, but I want to see how fast it can render images and things, especially for production work and things that I do. And Blender Benchmarks are so well done and it's available in Linux. You just download it, you install it, you double click the app image and boom, you're off and running and doing a really cool benchmark that you can compare against other people with similar computers out there. So check that out. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, we love your faces. And if you want more DL, become a patron like all these beautiful people here in our gigantic 80,000 square foot digital studio that only the patrons get to be a part of and the patron only after show that takes place after this here show ends. They get VIP access to events. Come on, hang out with the crew. Go to Patreon or Sponsus to become a patron today. In addition, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now live at DLNlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. And go right now to DLNstore.com to pick up some swag from the DLN network, or the, the DL network, because that's a redundant thing to say. But anyway, we have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and mm -hmm. stickers, and we're also having a lot more coming soon. So go to DLNstore.com to check it all out. There's so much great stuff, including the shirts, the shirt I'm wearing, the shirt Jill's wearing, and the shirt that Ryan is wearing, which is a new item in the store. So check that out. Awesome. So DLNstore.com. And we have so many amazing shows here on the Destination Linux Network, so make sure to check them all out. We have the Pseudo Show, the Ask Noah Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, <laughs> DLN Extend, Hardware Addicts, and Get Your Game On with our latest show, Gamesphere. So go to DestinationLinux.network and subscribe to get all of these shows to keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everyone have a great week and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Have Thanks everyone. Yay. See you next week. Bye.